It's going to be 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that it might be sharp, that it might be powerful, that it might pierce us as to what it is. Lord, may our view of Scripture this morning be elevated. May it become higher and higher. Uh, May we rejoice that we have words spoken to us, gracious and true. And may we live functionally like you are a God who speaks. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. Amen. For the past month now, I've had the joy of leading our college students on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights. And let me tell you, God has blessed us as a church. He really has. Uh, I don't know all the reasons why. Uh, Kyle's probably a big part of that, one of those reasons. But God has been pleased to entrust this church with some quality students. I don't say that lightly. Some quality students. And seemingly more and more every year. Uh, As the new semester was about to begin, I asked some of our students a question. I said, what is the need of the moment? Students tell me, what, what is the biggest need for you as a student in 2021? And one of the top responses was discipleship. Discipleship. As students, we need to have a good foundation laid now to set us up for a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. The need of the moment is discipleship. Now, that was a very insightful answer, I thought. After all, Jesus said discipleship isn't just the need of the moment. It is the essence of the mission he's given to us. You remember the mission Jesus gave to the church is go and what? Make disciples. Make disciples. That is the mission. That's every church's mission. And that's what we are to be all about here at Alberta Baptist Church. Jesus designed the church to be the pillar and support of the truth to be discipling people into the truth. Because if we're not discipling people into the truth, you better believe that the world is discipling people into the lie. The culture around us is catechizing people into its values. Social media is discipling its users into certain ways of thinking and responding. The church today, as in every day, has to speak a better word than the world. It has to tell a better story than the culture, show a better way than what's mainstream around us. And that will only happen as we disciple people, helping them lay a foundation for a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. So, We're going to start a new series here this morning, and we're calling it Discipleship 101. Discipleship 101, for the next seven Sundays, we're going to be looking at seven foundational truths. Truths that that will set you up, Lord willing, 
for a lifetime of following Jesus and growing in grace. But as we begin this series, I want you to understand something from the start. You can be a real Christian and believe zero of these things. These things that we'll be looking at in the next seven weeks are not essential things. They aren't essentials like believing in the resurrection is essential. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you're not a Christian. Believing in the Trinity is essential. If you don't believe in the Trinity, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, by definition, you are not a Christian. You can understand none of these things we're going to be looking at the next seven weeks and still be a genuine Christian. But from what I have observed, if you don't believe these things, you will struggle. You will struggle. If your discipleship isn't fully formed in these areas, you will feel it at some point. And as a pastor, I'm trying to spare you from hurt. I'm trying to prepare you the best I can for a lifelong pursuit of Jesus and his kingdom. And I, I've seen seven places where many Christians were never discipled in some foundational truths. And we're going to start with the most foundational of them all this morning. It, this one, if you lay this foundation stone in your life, most all the others will eventually and naturally fall into place. The foundational truth is, as you can see on the screen, Scripture sufficiency. Scripture sufficiency. It's a nice sounding word, Pastor KJ, Gabe says. It's a nice sounding word, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, I'm glad you asked, Gabe. Let me tell you. Scripture sufficiency. Christians have traditionally described the sufficiency of Scripture with this one short statement. Do you know what it is? One short statement. The Scripture is sufficient for faith and practice. Scripture is sufficient for faith and practice. The Bible, the Scripture is sufficient for our faith and for our practice. Something like that statement is in nearly every Christian confession of faith and every doctrinal statement going back to the Reformation. But what does it mean? What does it mean that the Scripture is sufficient for faith and practice? It means the Bible is all we need for finding out what we should believe, faith, and how we should live, practice. The Bible is all we need to, to tell us what we should believe and how we should live. The Scripture is God's direct word on what is true and it is a sufficient word for telling us how to live according to that truth. That's what is meant by the scripture sufficiency. If you want a scripture passage that teaches this, there are many places you could turn. But I think the best and most concise one is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. The one we're looking at this morning. Uh, the one that Chase read for us. I'll read it one more time because it's so short. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul here is writing to Timothy and he is making some huge claims about the Bible. Let's think carefully through these claims because I, they're really incredible. But before we, before we do, before we dive in, let me say this. 
if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you're not a Christian yet, then you've got something to wrestle through this morning. It's an issue that the rest of us have already wrestled with and been convinced of, but you need to be as well. The issue is this. Can God speak? That's the question. Can God speak? Can the creator speak in a way that his creatures can understand? That's not an unreasonable claim, is it? You'd be foolish to dismiss that claim out of hand. If there is a creator who made a world in which there are people who can see and communicate with one another, it should be well within the power of that creator to see and communicate with his creation. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to believe. And no surprise, that is exactly what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. God exists and he is not silent, but he has spoken. And he has spoken to us through his word. You believe something that is very, very reasonable. That's what Christians believe because that's what the Apostle Paul believed. That's what Jesus believed. We see the proof of that in verse 16. Paul says, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture. When Paul says all scripture is inspired by God, he is literally saying all scripture is God-breathed. God breathed. It's as though the words written on the page are the very words breathed out by God. This is what theologians call divine inspiration, which is a shorthand way of saying this, that the Spirit of God so superintended the writing of the Scripture that the words written by the hands of human authors were the exact words God intended them to write. That's what divine inspiration is. God so superintended the process by the Spirit that the words written are the exact words God wanted written. This is true for Paul as he composes his letters to the churches. The Holy Spirit is guiding him and governing exactly what Paul says. This is true for John as he remembers and records what Jesus said and did. God's Spirit is bringing back to mind the exact words that Jesus spoke. Jesus foretold that would happen, and the Spirit is guiding John to write about some events while passing over others. Remember, John said that if everything Jesus did were written down, the world itself could not contain all the books. God's Spirit was inspiring and revealing things to Moses as he records the creation narrative in Genesis, as well as the histories of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God was even directly revealing his word to slack-jawed, dirty, goat-herding tribesmen like Joel, Amos, Ezekiel. Modern academics may scoff at the idea but I think it is humbling and beautiful. It's a humbling and beautiful reality that God would speak directly to dirty shepherds sleeping rough in the field. And I think if we can own that as a people, if we can own that and be glad that God revealed himself in this way, that God revealed himself to uneducated people, people that the academy would turn their nose up at, if we can own that and see the beauty of it, 
then there is not much that the scoffers can say that will hurt us. We've already owned the worst of it. There's not much the scoffers can say. Notice that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse 16, Paul says, All Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. It is God-breathed. All Scripture. The letters of Paul are just as inspired and authoritative as the Gospels, which record the teaching of Jesus. The histories of the Old Testament are as much inspired by God as John's vision of the end of history in the book of Revelation. And not only is the whole Bible inspired by God, but it is all profitable and useful, verse 16. It's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. All Scripture is this way. Romans is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And Leviticus is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Notice, however... The promise is not that Romans and Leviticus are equally profitable in the exact same way and to the exact same extent. Instead, you will profit one way from reading Romans and another way from reading Leviticus, and they will not be the same. You you know that? You've realized that? They will not be the same. You will gain from both, but you will profit from them in different ways. We are promised that all Scripture is intended by God for our good and for our profit. Anywhere you turn in the Bible, you are hearing God speak for your good, for your instruction, and so that your mind might be conformed to His mind. God knows this. He knows we are in dire need of change. Because none of us naturally see the world rightly. No one naturally understands the mind of God, do we? No one innately knows and comprehensively knows what is true and right and good. All of us need a renovation to take place in our minds. We need a renovation in our minds, a renewal to take place in our hearts if we are to see the world as God sees it, which is the right way to see it, isn't it? It was G.K. Chesterton, he put it this way. He said, our problem is this. We have all been born upside down. All of us. We've all been born upside down. We all see the world as though we were standing on our heads. But God has given us his word so that he might begin to turn us right side up and us see the world as it really is, as God sees it. This is what Jesus was doing. As he comes in his ministry and the Sermon on the Mount, it's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's taking people born upside down and turning them right side up. He's, he takes the natural way we see the world where the rich are blessed and the powerful inherit the earth and the popular ought to rejoice. And he says, no, you're seeing it wrong. You're actually seeing the world on its head. You're seeing the world upside down. This is the opposite of how God sees things. Here, let me stand you on your feet. Let me show you the world as it really is, where it is the poor in spirit, not the rich who are blessed. It is the meek, not the mighty who will inherit the earth. It's the persecuted, not the popular who ought to rejoice, because glory awaits them. 
God has given us the Bible so that our minds might be renewed. That we might see the world right side up as God himself sees it. We need to be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained if that's going to happen. That's what I need. That's what I still need. That's what you need. We all need to have our minds taught, reproved, corrected, and trained continually. Paul says all of this, all of this change comes through the Scripture. It comes through this book. All of it comes through what God has spoken to us. Real change doesn't come by looking internally for a word, listening to some internal voice. Real change comes from an external word, something that comes from without and changes us, something that invades our heart and changes our mind. Because a changed mind, we all need it, a changed mind is the first step toward changed actions. We see that in verse 17. God inspired this word. It's all profitable for changing us so that, verse 17, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for action. We need the correcting, the teaching, the training that only words from God can give us so that we might be equipped for action. So that we might live differently. Because when you begin to see the world as God sees it, when your mind begins to be conformed to his, then you will begin to act in the world as he would act. As Jesus, in fact, did act. Why? Because you're seeing the world the same way. You've got the same heart, the same values. When your, mind, when, when your minds are being transformed by God's word, and when our actions are being changed because of it, then guess what? We become instruments, instruments in the Redeemer's hands, chosen instruments that God uses in the world, the hands and feet of Jesus. That's exactly what Paul says in the previous chapter. If you have your Bible open to chapter 3, look over to chapter 2 in verses 20 and 21. Paul says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honor and some to dishonor. There are vessels here, instruments, verse 22, sorry, verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. There, you see the same end goal as chapter 3, verse 17. Prepared for every good work. The exact same thing. How does a person become a sanctified instrument in the master's hands, prepared for every good work, according to chapter 2? The answer in verse 21 is, you must be cleansed. You must be cleansed. You want to be an instrument in God's hands? You have to be cleansed. But, according to chapter 3, how does that very same thing happen? How is a person equipped for every good work? It's through the Scripture. Through the scripture, through the scripture's teaching, reproof, and correction. We see that, verse 16 and 17. Now, here's the question Are these two different paths to being used by God in the world? You can either be cleansed or you can be changed by God's word. Are those two different paths and you have to pick one or the other? What's the answer? No. No. 
These are not two different paths. These are one and the same together. One and the same. The way we are cleansed is through God's word. Through God's word. The teaching and correction of the scripture is what washes our mind clean and makes us useful for every good work. You can see how this works, right? Here's a very simple example. Someone offends me. Someone offends me, and what's my natural response? What's your natural response? Get angry, right? Get angry at the offense. Want to hurt them like I have been hurt, like they've hurt me. I want revenge. But God's word invades my heart and washes my mind of its old default settings. I, I hear the word. I remember the word. The Holy Spirit brings James 1, verse 20, back to mind. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And it's like a sword that pierces me in that moment. And I remember Romans 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Why? God is the avenger, not you. Leave vengeance to him. Because my mind has been washed by God's word, I'm now free to respond in those situations like Jesus would. Not lashing out at the mockers, but doing good to those who offend me. Forgiving those who couldn't see the hurt that they were doing, or perhaps they could. Why? Because the scripture says, this is exactly what Jesus did for me. I'm responding in the way Jesus has responded to me and the offenses I have given him. Jesus intends his word to have this kind of cleansing power in the lives of his disciples. And he told us so. Remember John 15? John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Literally, you know what that says? Literally, he cleanses. He cleanses. He cleanses it that it might bear more fruit. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You see that connection? You want to be clean? You are already clean because of the word, the word, my word, the word I've spoken to you. How are we going to be prepared for every good work and become more fruitful in this life? We are made more and more fruitful as we are cleansed more and more by God's word. Cleansed by the word while we abide in his son. There's no substitute for this, Christian. There is no substitute for being cleansed by the word of God, having our minds renovated by what God has said. Other Christian books are good insofar as they help you apply this book. Other writers are helpful insofar as they capture your imagination with this story. This is why I read C.S. Lewis. This is why I read Tolkien not to find new truths, but to make the truths I read in Scripture stick better in my mind. That's what a good story does. That's what a good book does. It takes this book and makes it stick more. So, this is what we mean when we say the Scripture is sufficient. You don't have to look elsewhere, church. You don't have to look elsewhere. There is nothing more you need for faith and practice, for life and godliness, 
the scripture is enough. It is a sufficient word. We don't have to look for extra words or extra revelations or secret knowledge, do we? It's all here. Jude 3 says, Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, you've already got it all. You've got it all already. Your faith doesn't need anything more than what God has already given. Everything you need for life and godliness is here. It's here. What's your problem then? Why do you struggle? Why is your heart so slow to change? Your heart doesn't need more than the Bible. That's not your problem. Your problem is that you need to get more of the Bible into your heart. You don't need more than. You need more of. David says, your word have I treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's, that's the crux of the problem, isn't it? We haven't been changed enough by the word yet. But that is a lifelong project. That's what discipleship is. That's why we're doing this series, that we might be changed by God's word. I hope we can all see that scripture sufficiency is a clear issue. It should be so clear for us because this is foundational for us to be fruitful followers of Jesus, realizing he has spoken to us a sufficient word. And you don't just have to take my word for it. Look around. Individual Christians and whole denominations who turn away from the Bible, what happens to them? They ultimately wither and die off. History teaches us that and is still teaching us that. We should learn a lesson. You turn away from what God has said, it's a path to withering and dying. But I also want you to know that a belief in the sufficiency of Scripture isn't simply a box that we tick. And if we tick that box, then all will be well with us. That's not the way it works either. I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. I tick that box. Now I am a better disciple of Jesus. It doesn't work like that. It may feel like that at the beginning, but these are beliefs that we must grow in, not simply a box that we tick saying we believe it's true. Because many Christians who tick the box, I believe in the Scripture sufficiency, functionally live at times like it is not true. Have you seen that? I will apply that to myself first as a pastor. As a preacher, I can say, yes, I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, but then I go and depend upon other things to do my work. When I only use the Scripture as a springboard to talk about what I want to talk about, then I am denying the Scripture is sufficient by the way I am using it. Does that make sense? When I think it is my cleverness, my great illustration, my emotional story in the sermon, my grasp on contemporary psychology, when I think that is what's really changing your hearts, then I may give lip service to the Scripture, but I'm really trusting in something else 
to be the power that changes people's lives. This is why, by the way, we preach through books of the Bible far more often than we ever do special series. Because I want you to see that the actual text and message of the Bible is directing us. Not me cherry-picking what I want to talk about. I want you to see that the actual words of Scripture are what's doing the heavy lifting in your life. That's important to see. The Scripture is doing the heavy lifting, not me. The Word is cleansing you and making you useful for every good work. Not the preacher's cleverness or ability to play on your emotions. So, if it applies this way to me as a pastor, how does the sufficiency of Scripture apply to everyone? What are some ways that genuine Christians can unknowingly live like the Scripture isn't sufficient? You're probably already putting the pieces together. You probably already know some of the applications I'm going to give you now. But let me give just two. Two ways. Two ways people who say they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture but walk out the door and functionally deny it. Two ways. Number one, we live like the Scripture isn't sufficient when we go looking for other words from God. When we go looking for other words. We cry out, God, what is your will? I just want to know. I've got this big decision in front of me, and I feel paralyzed until I get some subjective word on what to do. Should I take this job or that one? Should I date this person? Should I marry that person? God, just tell me your will for my life. When we feel paralyzed in making a decision, the sufficiency of Scripture ought to come to us as truly good news. You can relax, Christian. You can relax. God has spoken his will in words that you can read and understand and which cover 95% of your everyday decisions. He says to you, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You want to know God's will? That's it. If you're doing that, it ultimately doesn't matter if you take that job or that other job. Because you'll be doing the will of God in either place. If, however, you stress over decisions until you feel like you've gotten some subjective word from God to follow, enabling you to take the quote-unquote right job, but you neglect what God has very clearly said, you neglect his word that says to rejoice always, in everything give thanks. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not doing what God has told you to do, then you're not doing God's will, even if you think you've taken the right job. Does that make sense? In the decisions that make up the overwhelming majority of our lives, God has clearly told us his will. And here is where you will find it. Here is where you will find it. God has told you clearly that there is wisdom in an abundance of counselors. Proverbs 11. There's wisdom and abundance of counselors. Make your big decisions in consultation with a church family who loves God and who loves you. That's wisdom. Then 
you can go take that job. You can make that move rejoicing that you are not strong enough to thwart God's will or ruin his plan for your life. Should I marry that person, you ask? Oh, why doesn't God tell me something? You cry out in the night. (laughs) Why doesn't God tell me something? He has told you. He has told you, don't be joined to an unbeliever. Is this person a growing disciple of Jesus who will sharpen you like iron sharpens iron? If the answer is no, then God has told you. Why expect another word? He has told you. By the way, ladies, if a guy ever comes to you saying, God has told me we're supposed to be together, hand him your Bible and say, where? Where? Point it out to me. Show me. Where? Where? Beware. Beware of those who use God told me so as a weapon, as a weapon for their own desires. I'm pretty sure, brother, that is your desire speaking, not the Lord here. God told me to leave the fellowship of the church, someone says. Really? Because it looks like God says the exact opposite again and again and again. Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Hebrews 3, 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. God tells us not to move away from Christian community, but always to move toward it. Always moving toward it. Let me speak now purely from my own experience. And listen carefully to me here. I never, I never hear God speak with certainty outside of the Bible. Never. Now, have I felt impressions to do this or that before? Yes. Have I felt moved to speak with someone that I had no reason to and see evidence right away God was in it, God was at work? Yes. Have I looked at a mountain or seen a bird in flight and felt the wonder of it like a message from God? Absolutely. Often. But these experiences are imp- and impressions are only like slack lines to me. A slack line that I don't put any weight on unless it is firmly attached to the rock-solid pillars of God's Word. You know what a slack line is, right? You know what a slack line is? It's like a, like a tightrope kind of thing that you can walk. You walk upon it. I haven't done it myself, but I've seen others do it. Does a slack line look like a bit of a thrill? Yes, it does. It looks thrilling. It looks like fun. Do I trust a slack line? No, not really. Would I build my life upon a slack line? Absolutely not. But I, but I would build my life upon stone pillars, the stone pillars of God's word. I would not build up my life upon a slack line, not just because it's flimsy, but even more because I do not trust myself on one. I'd be the guy who would be going off to the emergency room my first try. 
I don't trust my cell phone one. But I do trust the stone pillars. I do trust God's word. I trust the word of God as the foundation of my life. And I only indulge the slack line impressions to the extent that they are rooted in the rock solid foundation of God's word. Does that image make sense to you? Is that helpful? I hope it is because this is where a lot of Christians get it wrong and it comes back to hurt them. They begin to build their lives more and more upon subjective impressions, how I feel, and less and less upon objective realities, upon God's word. And one day they wake up and find themselves far away from God's people. They've drifted away because they've let their own impressions be their standard, not realizing that the scripture is sufficient. It is a sufficient word. They were never discipled on this issue. So many people never discipled on this issue. But let me introduce you to someone who was and who got this right. A German monk by the name of Martin Luther. Luther believed in the sufficiency of Scripture, and he put it in a very memorable way. He said, Luther said, If an angel were to come to me and say, Martin Luther, you are a saved man. I would not take his word over the word of Scripture. I would not believe him over God's word. The subjective experience of an angelic visit would still need to bow to the objective written word of God. Why? Why? Because angels can lie. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. However strong the slack line is, Martin Luther would warn us, it needs to be rooted to the rock-solid pillars of God's word. So, one way that Christians live like the scripture isn't sufficient is by constantly feeling the need for additional revelation from God. But you don't need it. God has given you a sufficient word. That's the first way. Here's a second way. Genuine Christians can live like the scripture isn't sufficient. Are you ready for this? By not bothering to read it. This is the moment where I feel like I should take the mic off and just drop it and walk away. Not bothering to read it. To use an Old Testament image, too many of us are living off of yesterday's bread. We're living off our past feasts in God's word while starving in the present. Living like the scripture is sufficient means you go to the Bible for the needs of this present day. So, I want to challenge myself. And I want to challenge you. Read and meditate on the scripture more than you ever have before. Make that your goal. Read it by yourself. Read it with your family. Read it with your roommates. Read whole books at a time. Pick a time after breakfast or lunch and do that together with someone. If you've never read through the Bible before, pick a plan. Any plan is better than no plan. Pick a plan. Try memorizing a longer portion of Scripture than you've ever done before. Prioritize it over lesser things. Prioritize it over Netflix, 
over social media, over keeping up with the latest news. Here's my challenge to myself, and I'll give it to you. KJ, spend more time hearing from God through his word than you do hearing from the world through the media. KJ, spend more time listening to the Savior you follow than the social media friends you follow. I guarantee you'll be better off for it. KJ, you will be happier for it. You will be a better instrument in God's hands for it. Remember, Scripture sufficiency isn't a box we tick, but it is an element of discipleship that we grow in. It is, if it is a foundation stone, then it is a stone that must grow larger and larger as we grow. If the sufficiency of Scripture is a muscle, it is one that we must work out and exercise. Let's all strengthen our grip on God's word. Our Savior, Jesus, knows that you will need it. You will need a strong grip on his word to overcome what is coming at you in this life, the 9-11s that come in this life. You will need a strong grip on his word to overcome the storms that are coming. Jesus told us this. He said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask, I ask, that as disciples of Jesus, we would lay this foundation stone in our hearts. May our lives be founded upon the rock, the true and living words that you have spoken. Lord, may we not say that we believe it, that we treasure your word more than gold, that it be sweeter to us than honey, and yet we leave it aside. We don't bother to take it up and read it. Lord, may you convict our hearts, convict my heart of our negligence in hearing from you. And may we always, for the rest of our lives, connect all the small uh, subjective impressions back to the objective, rock-solid rock (laughs) of your word. Lord, may you lay this stone in our hearts for our growth in godliness and our pursuit of King Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.